0: Hello and welcome to Culture Exchanges, a podcast at the intersection of the humanities and cultural diplomacy. I'm your host, Terry Harvey, Vice President of the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy. This podcast series explores the impact of the arts and culture on diplomatic relations across the world through discussions with cultural diplomacy experts. On this episode of Culture Exchanges, we have an exciting interview with Dr. Julian Kavan Glover on the ballroom scene. Ballroom, which is a culture that came out of queer black and brown communities in New York, is characterized by elaborate pageantry of performance, costumery, and community. From Madonna's Vogue to the film Bur- Paris is Burning, ballroom culture has made tremendous impacts on popular culture through dance, fashion, language, television, and music in the United States and abroad. Dr. Glover is an academic, activist, and performer whose academic work focuses on black and brown queer cultural formations, performance, ethnography, embodied knowledge, and performance theory. They were awarded a Frank Fellowship at Northwestern's Kaplan Institute for the Humanities, and their work appears in journals, including American Quarterly, the Harvard Kennedy School LGBTQ Policy Journal, South Atlantic Quarterly, Souls, and Text and Performance Quarterly. In 2019, she was inducted into the Edward A. Boucher Graduate Honor Society at Yale University and is a longtime member of the ballroom scene. Thank you so much, Dr. Glover, for joining us. Uh, We really look forward to diving deeper into the subject matter. I thought we could begin sort of at the origins of ballroom culture. There seems to be a debate around the beginnings of ballroom, some say the 1980s, where others have found traces going back to the 19th century, which is incredible. How and when did this culture emerge and and how did the ballroom scene get its name?
1: Very happy to be here. So as is the case with any cultural formation in history, it evolves over time and seldom does it look or resemble as time progresses what it used to. The ballroom scene is no different. So some of the earliest kinds of iterations of the ballroom scene, you know, I really do hearken all the way back to the 19th century, right? We can think of some of the pioneers of or people whose performances and understandings of gender are, were really transformative, right? So I'm thinking of The work of somebody like Channing Gerard Joseph, who asserts that the first drag queen was a formerly enslaved person by the name of William Dorsey Swan, who was alive around the 19th century, late 1800s. And that's important because it provides a bit more context to see and understand just how long and how intimately connected legacies of Black humanity are, really, with legacies of ballroom, um, particularly here in the United States. Now, the scene that we know, or as we know it today, really began to form in New York City, in the, around the turn of the 20th century, really during the Harlem Renaissance. It really, be, really began to see the earliest iterations of what would become ballroom. There's even, um, in his biography, even Langston Hughes mentions attending drag balls and he has some fierce critiques <laughs> of the of the girls and the people who were there so um, I thought that particularly interesting and in terms of the name where ballroom comes from, it really also reminds us historically speaking of where um, balls were held. They were held in grand ballrooms which is what they were called. Of course we know around the turn of 20th century, 1920s, 30s, 40s, Grand ballrooms were all the rage, right? They were the place where you would go and gather with friends, go and dance, all kinds of dances would happen there. So that is how um, the ballroom scene got its
0: name. Incredible. I mean, one thing that comes to mind when discussing ballroom history is the importance of, of space. Can you talk about the necessity of having a space specifically for queer, black and brown community and performance? How does this need for space translate and move around the world in other ballroom scenes?
1: Great question. I will say that we need to think about this structurally to really for this to really make sense before we can zero in. Um, and when I say that, we need to think about the kinds of structural barriers that brown, black, LGBTQ people face. Many of these structural barriers are due to our race, our gender, our sexual orientation, and our class. So there are multiple ways in which we experience marginalization. And so what that means is that even in spaces that are marked for marginalized communities, like black spaces, often black spaces are not very hospitable to black LGBT folks. Whereas you also have LGBT spaces, which are not always hospitable to black folks, right? And brown folk as well. So this to say that there's a need, folks in Baldwin really saw a need to create a space for ourselves that was wholly independent of the existing kinds of spaces so that we might not just be able to come together, but come together to honor and to affirm one another and to recognize our own embodied, um, creative and logistical genius. And I, and I say that because it takes a lot of logistical knowledge and power to put together a ball, one. And then two, to put together a major ball takes even more, right? and so. By creating these particular spaces, we were able to carve out space for ourselves rather than attempt to continue to interject ourselves into other spaces. And as history has shown, the scene remains very, very, very influential in terms of space and a number of other things.
0: Yeah, I mean, yet another example of how a, a culture and a community can can really bring and, and bring communities together through this safe space. It's really amazing. So as a scholar, multidisciplinary creative, a longtime member of the ballroom scene, your work focuses on Black and Brown queer cultural formations and body knowledge, performance ethnography, and performance theory. Uh, there's so much to discuss with ballroom, but you've previously mentioned the importance of ritual performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you de- define ritual performance? for our audience in what ways can ritual performance be seen and experienced within Balrog?
1: Great, right, great. This is a lovely question. Ritual performance is a type of performance that is engaged by a particular cultural formation with specific purposes. Often, the purpose is to honor, to recognize the pioneers, the moment makers, and the overall contributors that culture formation. And the way that folks do that is by constituting a very particular processual way of moving through the space. So within ballroom, the best example of ritual performance that happens at every single ball, it starts every single ball that is LSS, which stands for legends, statements, and stars. What this is, is a ritual performance where the MC, what's called a commentator in ballroom, gets on the mic and before the ball starts, they ask DJ to pump the music and they recognize individually, one by one, all of the people who in the building in that moment who are pioneers within the ballroom scene, right? So you have, and of course, it's so ritualized, it's so instituted into ballroom that you have these classes, right? That are called Legends, Statements of Stars, (LSS) for short. Those are all three different gradients that tell you, um, the person being honored, and also communicate to the overall community the magnitude, if you will, of your contribution. So people will start off as a star, meaning that people are starting to see them, starting to see what they bring specifically or uniquely to the ballroom scene. Then you become what's called a statement, which means that your contributions are pretty well known. And people are beginning to really come to the ball expecting to see you bring it, your best. And then you have legends. These are the people whose contributions to the scene are innumerable, who have given so much to the scene that the scene has largely been transformed, if you will, by their particular contributions, whether it be aesthetic, embodied, or a number of other ways as well. And then for the chosen few, there's a status even above legends, and that is what's called icon status. These are the blueprints for entire, often the entire category in ballroom. So these are a very, very select uh, group of people also called the Hall of Fame. These are the most well-known people in ballroom across time, across space, whose contributions they have made, usually over a period of 20 years or longer. They also, like I said, have to have very serious, um, long-standing kinds of contributions to be able to become an icon. And, you know, we live in a day and age where the term icon is used, misused, and a bit abused, if you will, just in terms of its, um, its use. But ballroom, in accordance with, with its ritual performance practices, really, really means it when they call somebody an icon. It's something that you're, it's a designation that you're not just given, it is something that you must earn.
0: Wow, that, that is uh, quite powerful. I think speaking more broadly, I would love for you to talk more about the role and what role has the ballroom scene played in the conversation and understanding of gender identity and expression? How does ballroom foster these dialogues in an international context when the scene develops in other countries?
1: So this is great. I, I love this question. I will start by saying that uh, with a personal kind of example, I came into ballroom as a teenager. I was a 16-year-old coming from a Pentecostal household where for a short amount of time, my parents told me if I was not going to change my ways and get out of what they deemed to be a lifestyle, well, then I was going to have to leave their home, which I did. You know, I was maybe perhaps a little scared, but not scared enough to stay. So I left and made my way to the nearest major city, which was Chicago, ended up in, in community and fellowship with three femme queens, that's ballroom terminology for transgender women, who fed me, clothed me, sheltered me, took care of me, and most importantly, they introduced me to the ballroom scene. And for me, the ballroom scene was the very first example where I got to see with my own eyes what could become a Black queer life beyond getting HIV and dying. Because at the time, a 16-year-old, the images, representations I had of Black queer life told me that I was very likely to get HIV and die. But ballroom really gave me a very different understanding of what was possible, right? And really, what it taught me in terms of gender identity and expression is what I saw there, who was celebrated, right? It was my first time really being in a space where you openly saw people loving on trans feminine people, trans masculine people and many other um, LGB kind of folks within the community now. Yeah. So the um, ballroom scene does recognize um, expanded set of gender embodiments, if you will. And I'm thinking of the scholar uh, Marlon Bailey, who wrote a book called Bush Queen's Oven Pump, in which he theorized that the ballroom scene today recognizes six gender categories, rather than the kind of two sex categories that we recognize within. Um, the world today, and that's important on a number of levels. One, it speaks back to this idea that is pervasive in the United States, which suggests that Black people somehow are more homophobic, more transphobic, if you will, than other communities. And, And the existence of ballroom, for me, and its contributions, its significance within the world definitely proves that to be not true. And like I said, it also really helped me understand that in terms of gender embodiment or gender identity, it was really all about what I make of it. Now, when we think about the international context, this is what's really exciting to me because I've had the opportunity to travel abroad quite a bit and have experiences with other ballroom scenes, most notably in London, England, in Paris, France, and in Toronto, Um, Canada as well. And as is the case with gender, it is very much contextual in accordance with the geopolitical context where you find yourself, right? So that means that gender identity expression manifests differently in these different places. So it's to say the kinds of cultural cues that might be really well known here in the United States might not always translate so well when we go to another place. But the thing about it that I really love about ballroom is that ballroom does a pretty good job of um, making space for a number of expressions of gender. It is not without, as is the case with any cultural formation, it is not without its contestation, right? And when we really think about gender identity or gender embodiment and expression, this is where we get a real contestation of ballroom. It comes around this idea of realness which Marlon Bailey theorized as a kind of strategic minimization or elimination of any deviation from heteronormative gender roles and norms. Meaning that even though people, many people in these communities are trans people, the goal of realness is to blend in to normative society. We have notions of realness which are determined by people in the United States, which are then exported in terms of expectations um, all across the world, where people do their gender very differently. Last thing I'll say, one of the biggest, I should say, subsets within the LGBT community that the ballroom scene um, is at odds with, is definitely the non-binary community, because even though the ballroom scene has an expanded understanding of gender, embodiment, and expression, it still preserves this dichotomy with binaries between the masculine and the feminine, man and woman. And of course, non binary people really, myself included, really desire to collapse that bifurcation. Um, so you can see how that might cause a number
0: of potential conversation. Well, wow, beautifully said. Thank you so much. You know, when we discuss cultural diplomacy as a whole, you know, we often focus on the cultural exchange component. One component that is often left out is the, the building of community. And we touched on that a little bit earlier, which is an important tenet of ballroom. Can you speak about the creation of communal structures within ballroom? In other words, what ways has the scene redefined what community and kinship looks like?
1: is another great question, TK. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that um, the ballroom scene departs, let's start by saying this, the ballroom scene departs from normative ways or normative formations of kinship to a significant degree. What do I mean by that? The ballroom scene does not privilege biological understandings of kinship or family as the basis for creating community. Now, that's a huge departure from, you know, how we understand community in the West in general, not just the United States, but the West in general, right? And so how the ballroom scene understands community is it is a practice that requires a kind of intention, a kind of doing, right? And so how does this manifest in ballroom? Well, it manifests within the housing, right? The house structure of ballroom. So you come into ballroom, if you want to compete, you are able to compete as what's called a free agent or a 007, right? Um, but most people are competing as a member of a house. So within ballrooms, the houses are the kinship networks, so the community networks that um, organize themselves in particular ways. Um, they often have house mothers, house fathers that are largely irrespective of gender embodiment. So, you know, you do not have to be, so that is to say, you do not have to be a cis woman or even a trans woman to be a house mother and and vice versa. So their ballroom reimagines community and kinship and with the house system. And one of the other things that the house system really does provide is a sense of community and it's through a sense of safety, right? Um, because we know that this world with regard to Black and brown LGBTQ people remains quite hostile. We need only look at all of the kinds of things going on within the American landscape to see in terms of what's going on legally with, you know, friends, people, to really see that the, the LGBT community remains, you know, within the kind of process, if you will, of so many cultural contestations. Uh, and so, even with all that, you know, we know that every human needs a sense of safety, a sense of um, security and the ballroom theme through its understanding and delineation of the house uh, network or the house theme, house network, really do help us provide those kind of structures. It also, the other thing I'll say is that the house um, structure within ballroom also really helps to aid um, skill building for folks. So. This is something that I think within ballroom is often forgotten. Because ballroom is largely, takes place within a competitive framework, right? A ball is a competition at the end of the day. We often can forget the other important roles that houses play beyond beyond um, the ball, right? And so that is to say, for example, it takes a lot of logistical know-how to organize a ball. Well, when you are part of a house and you are close to... House parents or whoever is running the ball, you, by virtue of being in proximity with them, watching them do what they do, can learn an abundance of skills that are very much transferable to the other kinds of things that you may find yourself doing in the world, right? So organizing a ball can very well be understood as event planning experience, right? And so, you know, the so the ballroom scene really helps people who have largely been taught that their experiences, their skills do not matter in this world. They are shown in a different way that in fact they do. They might look different, but they do not mean any less than if they receive the training from some other kind of avenue. So that's just a little bit about how it understands, how the Baltimore scene understands community and kinship and how it manifests,
0: and also what it manifests to. Oh, I love that. I'll leave you with this This final question. is really regarding to the impact of ballroom culture on the world stage. You know, it's clear that ballroom has played a tremendous role in in shaping international culture, especially pop culture. The presence of ballroom has created and or influenced dance forms, such as voguing, music genres, such as house, funk, disco, and rap fashion and language, I mean, the list goes on. Um, what are your observations of, of the scene's global impact?
1: Yes, this is a lovely question, too. You know, I would say that the scene's impact globally remains quite strong. And again, I'll also say that its impact really differs from place to place. However, there are a couple of things that I think are kind of through lines, if you will, that are the case with everything, and that is specifically thinking about how folks will use their own cultural context to um, inform their relationship to voguing. Well, it is well known that voguing is a story told through movement. Well, if voguing is a story told through movement, then the story is going to look very different whether you find yourself in Chicago, you find yourself in Toronto, you find yourself in Paris, you find yourself in London, you find yourself in um, Tokyo, you find yourself in Oslo or anywhere, right? And so what I found to be so interesting is that these stories are, are very much different. And even the kind of sounds that are used according to the context are very different, right? So for example, I remember attending in 2019, the Caribana Festival in Toronto, it's North America's largest gathering of Caribbean and Afro-descendant people in Toronto the first weekend in August, I believe, every year. And what was so amazing about that is that there's a concurrent event that happens right alongside Caribana called Obana. Black well, Blackobana is organized by, specifically, Black LGBT folks who also assert their particular stance within Caribbean and African kind of dissent while also embracing their sexuality, right, and their gender. So um, how this manifests is I went to there in 2019 to Black Obama, and I was amazed to see that those who were voguing, instead of voguing to, you know, a beat that is very much expected, right, one of the beats that's well-known in ballroom is called the hop, okay, so instead of voguing to the ha, you had folks voguing to soca, to dance hall. To Afrobeat, and so of course this reflects a very different kind of cultural um, understanding, cultural connotation than you would say. You know what might be the case in the U.S., where you know if you don't hear the ha, you are more likely to hear you know beats that come from the kind of hip hop genre, right? Well, this is also this also looks different. You know, if you are in Paris, where you know many of these balls are you know done. In French, as they should, in France, we. Oui. That's also, I think, very, very interesting to kind of understand, to kind of look at. Um, and also the folks in Paris really are voting to a number of beats that move way beyond the hall, not just with um dance and voguing, but also with the aesthetics, right? I will never forget there was a ball in London right around Pride where. Folks were um, contestants, you know, were um, instructed to come and bring it as a deity, as a deity or an orisha in the Yoruba kind of spiritual tradition, right? So everybody dressed in um, as the, the the orisha that they wanted. So you saw many oshoons, you saw a few ogons, and I saw even one babaluraye, which was wonderful to see. So again, these are things that you would really only see according to the whatever the geopolitical context you find yourself. And so it really speaks to the ways that ballroom provided a particular kind of frame work through which other folks could explore, understand their own kind of culture, right? And really shape popular culture um, in their respective places as well.
0: Well, it's really, it's really great when um, a cultural phenomenon can be universal by context, but really quite different depending on where you are uh, and what locale you're in. So I can't thank you enough, Dr. Glover. Uh, we've learned so much. I know our audience uh, gained a great appreciation and a deeper knowledge of this amazing cultural phenomenon. So thank you. Yes, thank
1: you to give the opportunity. Ballroom is here to stay, it's going nowhere. So get in
0: while you can. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on Culture Exchanges, a podcast that examines the impact of cultural diplomacy in its many forms on global relations. We'd like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for funding this podcast, our guest on this episode for taking the time to share their expertise, our podcast editor, Ed Bishop, and our listeners for taking the time to engage in the world of cultural diplomacy.